So that's Acts 22, starting at 30. But the next day, desiring to know the real reason he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, uh, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Why would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's Acts 24. And starting at verse 10, page 1125. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defence. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else... Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, 
It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was, was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. I wonder, what is your experience of courtrooms? Uh, I quite like legal dramas like Sidney Lumet's masterpiece, 12 Angry Men. You can ask me about that later. A friend of mine from school uh, once invited me to visit a courtroom and to sit in the public gallery with him. Uh, I said yes, hoping for a little bit of excitement, maybe, on a Wednesday evening. Um, but for the most part, it was pretty mundane. Some here will work in courtrooms, and I'm sure would have been able to tell me that beforehand. Uh, but even in real life, there are high stakes, high drama trials splashed across the news uh, every day. Uh, others here might have sadder experiences of courts as a plaintiff or a witness or a defendant. Our passage today sees the Apostle Paul in not one, but two courtrooms. In fact, in this last section of Acts, Luke spends an enormous amount of time and space narrating Paul's journey through the Roman legal system. From Roman custody in Jerusalem to the local Jewish court to hearings before not one, but two Roman governors before the local king and then on to Rome itself, where he is to stand trial before Caesar. And so we ask ourselves, why so much time in the courtroom? Well, the answer lies in the thing that makes courtroom dramas so very interesting. Scrutiny. Trials are all about scrutiny, as the defendant, the plaintiff and the witness are verbally poked and prodded and examined. Will their stories hold up under cross-examination or will they break down on the stand? And this section of Acts asks a similar question of Paul and the gospel. Will they stand up to scrutiny? You see, Lucas showed us the gospel spread across the whole of the Mediterranean, but he knows that we who are reading it haven't seen that spread for ourselves or met an apostle. He also knows that following Jesus means radical life change and that being a gospel-speaking Christian is going to land you in hot water, maybe even on trial like Paul. And if that's the case, then we need certainty. And that's true whether you're here as a Christian or whether you're just looking in on the Christian faith. Will the apostle and the gospel to which he testifies hold up under the cold, hard light of Roman justice? We don't use gavels in UK courts, but what will the verdict be when the gavel falls? Got one here. And welcome back, by the way, if you were drifting off. 
Our two trial scenes are on different pages of the Bible, so there'll be a little bit of flicking back and forth. Paul before the Jewish council at the start of chapter 23, and before the Roman governor Felix at the end of chapter 24. If you close your Bibles, we're on page 1123, and there's an outline in your service sheet, if that would be helpful. Page 1123. And these are the two things uh, that Luke wants us to notice in these trial scenes. Uh, Firstly, these trials are really about the gospel. Uh, These trials are really about the gospel. Uh, We should ask ourselves, why is Paul in hot water? Uh, And officially, the answer is that he is accused of criminal activity. Uh, The Jewish council are accusing him of defiling the temple and stirring up crowds with his teaching. Uh, The Roman authorities are more concerned by the riot that broke out in Jerusalem when Paul was there. And Paul does defend himself against these charges. Uh, Look across to chapter 24, verse 11. Paul says, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Or flip back to the previous trial in 23 verse 1. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul is protesting his innocence and he gives evidence to back up these claims. Look for yourself, he said. But the surprise of both trials is that Paul very quickly moves the spotlight onto the gospel. It's a bold move to go into a courtroom and to say to the judge, you've got the wrong set of charges. You've got the wrong set of charges. But Paul does it. I look down at 23 verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. Of course, this causes an almighty stir, as we heard, given the theological differences of those on the judge's bench. Uh, But it's not just a courtroom tactic. You see, he does it again in his Roman trial. I flip forward again one more time to chapter 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, says Paul, that according to the way, that's what he calls Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He finishes his defense in verse 21. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. This case, he says, is all about the resurrection of the dead. That is why I am here before you in handcuffs, Paul says. Now, Paul and many of the Jews, they agree that there will be a resurrection of the dead on the last day when everyone, all of us, will rise to stand before God's judgment throne. Uh, What's got Paul in hot water with the authorities is claiming that Jesus will be the one sitting on that judgment throne. If we think back to Acts 2 and to Pentecost, so very long ago, uh, we saw that Jesus's resurrection was to rule as God's universal king. Uh, More recently in Acts 17, we saw that God has appointed Jesus to judge the world. So as Paul and the other apostles went round the Mediterranean and here in the courtroom witnessing to Jesus's resurrection, what they're really saying is there is a new king in town. They're saying that it is Jesus's judgment throne 
that everyone will stand before. And perhaps that makes it a little bit easier to see why Paul got dragged into court for saying something like that. I used to walk through uh, Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park. I don't know whether you've been there. Um, it's a cemetery that filled up and has been converted into a park slash nature reserve with lots of trees and paths you can walk your dog along or jog or whatever you want to do. Uh, there are about 350,000 people buried there. And I remember walking through the park after hearing a sermon on Acts a little while ago and the resurrection and imagining what it would be like on the day that Jesus returns and all of these 350,000 people rise up out of their graves and all of the tombs open and the people in them get up and stand before Jesus. And I remember thinking, just how few people would you be using that park to walk their little spaniels if that was the thought on their mind? If you weren't sure of where you stood with Jesus, if you weren't confident in the salvation that he offers to all who trust in him, walking in the park with the news of the resurrection in your ears and seeing these graves in front of you that you know will one day open would be supremely uncomfortable. And I think you can see that discomfort in the way that the judges react to Paul. In a court scene, you expect the defendant or the witness to be the one to break down into tears under the scrutiny. But in these trials, it is the judges that break. I flip back to 23 verse 9 and look to the end of that verse. 23 verse 9. The Pharisees are quite positive about the resurrection in general. So they try to back up Paul and they say, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? But you notice the option that they've missed in that list of people who could have spoken to Paul Uh, They are ignoring the fact that Paul's very claim before the crowd was that it was Jesus who spoke to him. And they're ignoring that because that would mean that Jesus is alive and on the throne, uh, which is a tricky thing to admit for this council, uh, which was just like the one arranged for Jesus' death. Perhaps some of them sitting on that council were among them that day. Or flick forward to the Roman governor in 24 verse 25. 24 verse 25. Paul was speaking about faith in Jesus to him. 24 verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix, the governor, was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And Felix sends him away, hoping for a bribe. Felix is alarmed and he shoves Paul under the carpet because as Paul made clear to him, Jesus is alive, and that means that he faces judgment for his lack of righteousness and self-control. These trials are really about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus's resurrection. But neither the Jews nor the Romans can accept that because there is too much to lose. Now for us, it can be very easy to reduce the gospel to good news about salvation. You and I, we say, can be right with God. Jesus is alive and we too can have life rather than death. And all that is wonderfully true. But if you don't grasp the public, global implications of the gospel, that there is a king, Jesus, who will judge the world, it makes it incredibly difficult to understand why gospel-proclaiming Christians face unjust accusation and mistreatment like Paul in these chapters. If we think like this, that the gospel is just happy news for everyone, we're going to back down the moment our own efforts to speak about Jesus face opposition or threat, because we just don't understand why it's happening. 
But if we understand that the gospel news of the resurrection challenges this world, challenges this world's rulers, challenges our friends and our colleagues and our schoolmates, uh, we will understand when opposition comes. If Jesus was raised, he is king and judge, uh, which means there will be a day when each one of us and all of our friends will meet face to face with the one who said difficult things like this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Jesus says. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, says Jesus. And we will be asked, what did you do with Jesus? You see, these trials look like they are about civil order or Paul's behavior, but they are really about the gospel. Uh, So why should we keep speaking uh, when we know that the gospel and the people who speak it will be accused and opposed? Uh, Well, in all of these trial scenes, I think the very big thing that Luke wants us to take away is this. The gospel is innocent. That's the second point in our handout. The gospel is innocent. Again and again in this passage, Luke shows us that the gospel stands up to scrutiny. Uh, The verdict at the end of the case is a a resounding innocent. And that verdict comes from both God and man. At first we see it's declared innocent by men. Uh, Both the Jewish court and the Roman courts cannot make the charges stick. Uh, We find nothing wrong in this man, say the Pharisees. Uh, Nothing deserving death or imprisonment, says the tribune in the middle of the chapter. And Felix, the Roman governor... He has no answer to Paul's defense. And that's only highlighted by the way that we heard he keeps Paul in this strange limbo for two years as a favor to the Jews. Paul is under arrest, but with tons of liberty and with Felix dropping in on him on a regular basis for what sound like rather intense gospel conversations. That really wouldn't be a good look for this Roman governor to be dropping in on this prisoner if he really was guilty of all of those charges. Now, hang on one minute, you say. Uh, It's Paul who's innocent. I can see that. Uh, Why do you keep saying the gospel? Uh, But we remember that Paul is a gospel messenger. He's on trial because of the gospel. Uh, So it makes sense that the verdict that we hear, this innocent verdict, isn't just about Paul. Perhaps that also explains why Luke draws lots of parallels between Paul and Jesus in the last part of Acts. I've printed a few on the sheet in the table, uh, which you can look at later, but there are tons of parallels between Paul um, at the end of Acts and Jesus at the end of Luke. I'm not quite sure what Luke wants us to do with these things yet. Maybe you can help me with that. Uh, But I think at the very least, Luke wants us to tie together Jesus and Paul, uh, Jesus being tried and Paul being tried for carrying the gospel, uh, the king and the witness with the news of the king's resurrection in his hand. And just as nothing could be found against Jesus, as we've been thinking about today, and nothing could be found against the gospel. Uh, Even under scrutiny, the verdict was innocent. Innocent. In 2018, 36% of Brits surveyed by the Bible Society called the Bible outdated. Uh, 25% called it judgmental. Uh, Perhaps those numbers don't surprise us. And so I wonder if many of us have a lurking fear that the gospel is like some sort of ticking time bomb in our pocket. Perhaps we're worried that we'll make some sort of move to speak about Jesus, maybe inviting a colleague to a carol service with a gospel talk or reading a Bible one-to-one with somebody. 
Uh, We're worried that we'll face opposition, uh, perhaps we'll be accused of spreading hate or discrimination or lies. And our deep and lurking fear is that on examination, the gospel will prove to be uh, what it is being accused of. Hateful, false, terrible. The bomb in our pocket will explode, the gospel will crumble, and we'll be left right there in the lurch with our flyers in hand. But the gospel is innocent, Luke says. None of Paul's accusers had anything to say. Whether we're challenged about the goodness of Jesus or his teaching or the reliability of these accounts of his life and death and resurrection, I think you'll find that time and time again, Christians have gone to the scriptures and found innocence. If the Christian faith were a house, the floorboards are safe to jump up and down on. Uh, They're not rotten and will fall through at the lightest touch. If you're here today just looking in, uh, why not give that a go? Uh, Why not have a read of a gospel and see what you think? Consider Jesus' claims. Um, Time and time again, these have been considered and tested, and people haven't fallen through the floorboards. Even non-Christians today often accept this. Uh, Just the other day, I was listening to an atheist historian, Tom Holland, talk about Christianity. Uh, Listen to what he said. I found it absolutely fascinating. There are lots of reasons that people might use to disbelieve in God, he said, but the inadequacy of the New Testament as a source is not one that I would use. I come to this from studying the origins of Islam, he said, and classical sources of many kinds, and the closer I come, the more I am impressed by how much evidence there is for Jesus. His co-presenter pretty amusingly replied, if you're using Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is that Jesus was the son of God. And of course, that was immediately followed up with, but that's not the sort of thing that we historians tend to do, accepting supernatural explanations for things. Uh, Isn't that a lot like what we see in this passage? They don't accept it, but like with Paul, they cannot help but see the innocence of the gospel. Uh, But sometimes the court won't rule in our favor. Uh, So it's important that we recognize that in this passage, the gospel is declared innocent, not only by men, but by the only opinion that really counts. Uh, The gospel is approved by Jesus. I look down at chapter 23, verse 11. 23, 11. The following night, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That night after he had testified, Paul was not alone in his prison cell. His testimony was about the risen Lord Jesus, and the same Lord Jesus stood by him in that cell. I can't imagine Luke giving us a clearer demonstration of the truth of Paul's claims. Given that, I hardly need to point out that Jesus calls Paul's gospel the facts. But Jesus' approval is important. Um, Sometimes you hear the fact that Paul had got the gospel wrong or that he had missed the emphasis or gone too hard or stated it in too offensive a manner. But no, Paul's gospel was approved by Jesus. In proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the consequence, Jesus' kingly rule and coming judgment of the just and the unjust, Paul was proclaiming exactly the right message. Jesus says these are the facts that must be testified in Rome. Rome was the center of Roman power, the place of Caesar's rule, and Paul's gospel was the message that he needed to hear. Jesus is alive and he is Lord. 
It was good enough to be heard even by kings like Caesar. And if you think about that for a moment, how rich was Caesar? Uh, Best estimate I could come across was about $4.6 trillion, which sounds absolutely ridiculous. So take that with a pinch of salt. But he could have afforded the top lawyers, the top investigators. He had the power and the money to search out the evidence to prove this gospel false. Uh, But Paul could proclaim the gospel before him, confident that it would stand up which means that it would be good enough for any situation that we could take it into either, however public. The temptation is to apply this to our work and our schools and our sports clubs. But if Paul were here today, he would probably be thinking about Xi Jinping or the Kremlin, people with power and money and influence to prove it wrong, because he knew that the gospel was Jesus' approved message, fit for the public spotlight, for the highest throne, innocent of what everyone accuses it of. And Jesus doesn't merely state his approval, he demonstrates it. It wasn't read today, but between these two trials, uh, 40 Jews conspire with the Jewish chief priests and the elders to assassinate Paul. Uh, They summon Paul to an apparent extra hearing and plan to ambush him along the way. They're so serious that they vow not to eat or drink until he's dead. Uh, But in one of those Bible coincidences, a total coincidence, uh, Paul's nephew is in the right place at the right time to hear these plans to report them to Paul, who tells the Roman soldiers guarding him. And not only does this make the Roman tribune send Paul on to Caesarea, one step closer to where he needs to be in Rome, and not only that, but he arrives with a bigger entourage than he expected. Let me read chapter 23, verse 23. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. If we imagine this scene, perhaps you've seen footage of the presidential motorcade, 40 or 50 armoured cars with swarms of motorcycles buzzing around. It's like that, but bigger and not far off a small British army battalion, an insane number of soldiers to protect one man in chains. You can imagine Paul in the middle of this vast crowd of men, armed to the teeth, looking around and thinking, Wow. And clutched in his hand is a letter to the governor from the tribune saying, this man has done nothing wrong. It beggars belief. Uh, humanly speaking, the tribune is, speaking to, is seeking to protect a Roman citizen. But coming right after Jesus' vote of approval, uh, this is clearly his work. Uh, the risen Jesus is sovereign over everything, uh, right down to the movement of Roman armoured columns. All of it because this gospel, Paul's gospel, was approved by Jesus and must be spoken in Rome. In that moment, Paul was supremely safe, defended not merely by Roman infantry, but by the risen Lord Jesus. As we often hear, safety isn't a promise for us, but we'd best be sure that Jesus will get his gospel to wherever it needs to go, because the gospel is innocent. Paul was a man supremely confident in the gospel of Jesus's resurrection, its reliability and its goodness. Yes, it challenges the world with the kingship of Jesus and the coming judgment. But as Paul proclaimed the gospel, he really could say, 24-16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. He spoke with a knowledge that the gospel would not let him down. So we've come to the end. It's our little courtroom. Uh, The gavel falls one more time. 
the verdict, innocent. And as we speak the gospel, wherever we have the opportunity, we can have that sound, that declaration of innocence ringing in our ears. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus really is alive, that he really reigns, and that the news of his resurrection can safely and must certainly go to all nations. Please give us real confidence that the gospel will indeed stand up under all the scrutiny and accusation that this world will array against it. Please give us confidence that the gospel really is innocent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.